welcome to Saga Shorts, where we're reviewing the tales and anecdotes appended to the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we may have put the saga of the Sworn Brothers to bed in late November, but we've still got a little work to do, John. That's right. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be reviewing two Thatter. The first is Thormod's tale, and the second is the tale of Thorarin the Overbearing. And hopefully, both of those names are still familiar to most of you if you've recently finished listening to our episodes on Frostbrother Saga. Uh, Thrarin the Overbearing is the guy who helped ambush and kill Thorgir. Yes, prompting the first ever Seal Ball Run, of course. Of course, Seal Ball Run, sure. Uh, that's what Thorgir's death scene was really about, establishing the origins <laughs> of the run. Uh, exactly. And the other name, Thormod, uh, hopefully is familiar to you, since that's uh, Thorgir's sworn brother, Thormod Colburn's poet, or Thormod Bersesson. Yes, uh, one of medieval Iceland's more famous poets, a lover, a fighter, an avenger, and a faithful companion to King Olaf. Oh, and uh, he's my thingman. <laughs> you left out plagiarist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's not important, uh, is it? But yes, yes. Uh, but he does have some qualities, I suppose. I'd forgotten about those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, he has, uh, he's been very busy since joining up with my thingman team. Uh-huh. Writing uh, praise poetry for you, no doubt? Well, I mean, that's, that's one of his primary roles in my hall. That's why I got him. Okay, so he actually has been writing poetry. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you going to share one with us? Well, I mean, let me see if he's around. Hold on a second. Uh, hey, Thormod. Thormod, come here, man. Come here. Could you mind, uh, do you mind sharing one of those poems you recited the other day about, oh, about me? Oh, boy. Certainly. Ahem. Andrew was stout of heart. Now, where's my music, please? <laughs> yes, sorry. Sorry. Here, here you go. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I, I want everybody else to understand that I'm I'm watching Andrew do this, <laughs> and he keeps turning his head sideways as though he's actually having a conversation between two people. You Go on, quiet. both of you. <laughs> <laughs> now the music, that's better. Andrew was stout of heart, steeped in sweat. This professor surged forward at the semester's end, urging his students to new heights. He stood firm against the storm of grading. The maker of marks stood with courage, unbound student word hordes, sang praises to the wise, fed ravens with fools. Thank you. Oof. I appreciate Uh, that. Thanks. I mean, hey, if you have to rely on your hype man for your verses, I guess that's the way to go. Um, What? I'm I'm surprised he didn't work in a line about your able seamanship. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm surprised you didn't too. Uh, we want to Thormod in the future. We want to work in what a great seaman I am. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots more stuff about seaman seamanship. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. And are you sure he didn't uh, write a similar poem for any other professors a few months ago, and then just uh, change a couple of words here and there? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's an original. Uh huh. <laughs> to the best of your knowledge. <laughs> That's right. As we were saying, right. uh, these two thought <laughs> fill in some gaps in the action of False Brother Saga. Uh, those mm-hmm. gaps exist sort of around the death of Thorgir. Yeah, that's what they do. Uh, but it's important to note here that they, uh, they're they not actually part of the story. In mm-hmm. fact, both of the tales that we're covering today, they're appended to completely different sagas. It's It's a bit of a messy situation, but we could try to unpack it here if only in broad strokes like we do, you know. Yeah, let's stick to broad strokes. Neither one of us uh, can claim to be experts on these particular stories or manuscript traditions. Exactly. But I, I have done a fair bit of digging in preparation for this, and I think I have the basics down. So uh, why don't we start with uh, Thormod Stouter? 
Yeah, that's a good idea because that's the less messy one, right? I mean, kind of, mm-hmm. if you want. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> Thormod Stouter, uh, which tells the story of Thormod's first meeting with King Olaf, is typically reprinted and translated from its appearance in the Flatair book. But according to Jonas Christiansen, uh, the tale was originally written as part of a late 12th century text commonly known as the oldest saga of St. Olaf, which only survives in small fragments. But what we know of this saga, this oldest saga of St. Olaf, it's preserved in fragments and then in the legendary saga of St. Olaf. Uh, but that's another story entirely. We don't need to get into that. Mm-hmm. What's good to know is that this oldest saga would have been one of Snorri Sturluson's sources when he was writing uh, his... The um, infamous Snorri Sturluson. Yes, yes. The infamous Snorri Sturluson likely used the oldest saga of St. Olaf when composing his own saga of St. Olaf Haraldsson for the Hemskringla. And mm-hmm. when the compiler of the Flatair book began working on his own version of the saga of St. Olaf, well, he incorporated it into the transitional moment between Thorgeir's death and Thormod's subsequent arrival in Norway. But it's messier than that because the Flatair book compiler wasn't telling the saga of the Sworn Brothers in a single cohesive narrative. What he was doing okay, was... Um, wow. <laughs> what, what, what? Well, first of all, I just hope uh, everyone appreciates the track that we've gotten onto here. Uh, oh, we're now talking about <laughs> tracing the origins of a story through its transmission across several centuries and through many different manuscripts. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's exciting stuff. It is, if you're, if you're into that kind of thing, if that's your key. I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I interrupted you because all this manuscript talk uh, reminds me of all that we didn't say about the structuring of Frostbite Saga in the Flathair book when we were reviewing the saga. Mm, that's true. Uh, we, we sort of kept mentioning that Frostbite Saga was broken up in Flathair book, but we didn't really say much more than that. Yeah, like I said, it's it's all a big mess and kind of hard to cover. Um, and it's probably mm-hmm. why we glossed over it, but I'll admit it's an interesting mess if you're into manuscript studies. <laughs> There's that again. Uh, you thought we were done with that, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, we should probably deal with this here and finish what we started in our Fosbrodo Saga discussion. Well, by all means. That, that, that's actually where I was headed uh, when you interrupted me, so go ahead. Okay, sure. Uh, all right. We mentioned that the Flathair book version of the Saga of Sworn Brothers is not told consecutively. It's uh, broken up into separate sections, interspersed with a variety of other stories. Yeah. And why would it be broken up, one might ask? Because the author or compiler or whatever uh, wasn't really trying to tell the story of Thorgeir and Thormod at all. That wasn't the point. Yeah, at least not exactly, right. Uh, so instead, as you just mentioned, the compiler was trying to put together a saga of St. Olaf. Uh, in doing that, he pulled stories from all over the place and sort of stitched them together into a semi-cohesive narrative, uh, mm-hmm. drawing from old sagas of St. Olaf, from other sagas, and from various relevant thatter as well. Yeah, not all, not a lot of sagas, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think it's mostly just uh, False Brother Saga and Orkninga Saga. The rest is mostly made up of Thatter. Fair enough. Uh, but what's important is that these sagas are not told in one piece from start to finish, as they might appear in mm-hmm. other manuscripts. The compiler of the Saga of St. Olaf inserts relevant stories from his sources wherever they seem to fit into his narrative. And so when he shifts to Frost Brothers Saga, he explains the relevance of the tangent in a preface by saying he wants to share some interesting stories about two important men who served King Olaf, who are mm-hmm. Thorger and Thormod, of course, uh, or the Sworn Brothers. The compiler then omits some things and adds some things that make sense for the perspective of the story he's trying to tell. 
Yeah, which explains why the Flotair book version of the saga was so different in tone and detail in parts when we were looking at yeah. those. Right, yeah. If you, if you read those sections that differ from the other manuscript versions, I think you find that it reads almost more like hagiography. Yeah. Uh, and that's because, of course, the, the narrative that he's stitching together is actually hagiography. That's right, yeah. So the compiler's decisions on where and how to break up the sagas, um, they're really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating how the structure and content of each section shifts the thematic emphasis from feuding, which, which is what it is in the other manuscripts, to kind of the movement toward or away from King Olaf. So mm-hmm. the first section of the Saga of the Sworn Brothers in Flatair book, it builds towards Thorgir's first meeting with King Olaf, and then it switches to a series of Thatter after that's done. Right. I mean, it really becomes interesting I, uh, uh, look at how these authors are thinking about genre and thinking about how to build texts toward a certain aim. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if you look at like the second section, right, it focuses on Thorgir as an agent of the king. Uh, and when we finally get to Thorgir's last stand, it's a shortened version, right? It's less interested in yeah. Thorgir's death and more interested in Thormod's subsequent travels. Yeah, which is where Thormod's tale begins. And he takes over as the main character of the saga. Right. Now, do, I mean, we actually, I think we just backed into an actual segue for telling this story. So should we just go into that? I think we did do that accidentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, I was planning to talk about Thoror and the Overbearing's Tale as well, but now that we're here, it probably does make sense to jump right into Thormod's Tale and then cover Thororin as we introduce that story. Yeah, I think it's best to do that before this turns into a saga brief on Manuscript Studies. We really need to stop saying that, John. Saying what? Manuscript studies? I, I knew you were going to do that. Don't do that again. Please. <laughs> I'm begging you. What's, what's, what's our budget for uh, Thunderclaps? How many of those do we have in the bank? Uh, it's really right. what's our budget for my patience uh, when, <laughs> when we're doing this and when I'm editing. Uh-huh. Uh, all right, fine. Let's begin our saga short on... The Tale of Thormod. So this Stouter begins with a brief introduction to Thormod. Yeah, the guy that has already appeared in the saga, and we're assuming is well known to any reader by this point. Well, I mean, yes, but keep in mind that between the death of Thorgir and the start of this tale, there are quite a few other stories in Olaf's saga, so there's a lot True. separating it. Yeah, and like I said before, the tale is taken from another source and just inserted into Olaf's saga here. Yeah. So it makes sense that it might open with an introduction to the protagonist of the tale. Exactly. So the goal is to make Olaf look better through the kind of men who served him. And mm-hmm. these guys are supposed to be the best of the best, or they become the best of the best. And the introduction to Thormod makes that abundantly clear. It says that Thormod Colburn's poet was a man of great distinction and many skills, a good poet, medium in build, and the most vigorous of men. It's a fine intro. It's kind of generic. It skips a lot of the sort of details about his personality, like the fact that he's a left-hander, the fact that he has black curly hair. Uh, It's generic, but it works. Yeah. Uh, It does make me wonder what kind of intro the Flatair book gives to Thorgir if they're supposed to somehow make King Olaf look better by association. What's Thorgir's? Yeah. We should look at that at some point. I'd like to see that too. Uh, I mean, the Flatair book version of False Brother Saga is the one that features Thorgir's famous... He stood so well poised for the blow, the uh, the killing yes. of the innocent shepherd, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not hard to say uh, that that man might make Olaf look better by comparison 
but it's hard to say how it makes him look better by association. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a feeling that the idea is Olaf's pacifying effect on Thorgrim mm. in that version. But um, I haven't seen it, um, so I can't really yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about the fact that he then dispatches Thorgrim to go, like, t- take down a guy in Iceland for injuring one of Olaf's men. So I think it's not as much pacifying as redirecting. <laughs> sure. But at yeah. least it is under control at that point, right? I mean, directing implies a kind of control. Um, yeah. It makes yeah. sense. So, um, yeah, we're going to have to have a look at the full edition of the Flathair Book Saga of St. Olaf to come out one day, right? And then uh, get a good look at it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so the tale goes on to explain that Thormod took no pleasure in anything after Thorgir's death. And so, finding no joy in Iceland, he set sail for Denmark. Now, why Denmark? Well, because you can't just have Thormod running straight into the arms of King Olaf in Norway, John. No. No, I mean, who expects to find joy in Denmark? <laughs> I assume the Danes? I don't know. Right. No, I, I, I'm, I, I kid because I love the people of Denmark. Uh, no, it's obviously it would just be too easy narratively to have him just show up at Olaf's court. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Uh, to be fair, that is exactly what happens in the False Brothers saga, though. That's right. <laughs> because that's, that author never met a shortcut he didn't like. That's uh, right. He just run yeah, no, right into uh, it. I think the saga does say that he grieved for Thorgir for a while and then sailed out of Iceland in the summer. Yeah. But then, I mean, it's a few lines later and he's greeting Olaf in Norway and plotting his revenge on Thorgir's killers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's why Thormod's Thauter is worth reading because things go a bit differently in this version. Right. So Thormod sails to Denmark and soon enough, the Danish king hears a rumor about Thormod being an exceptional man, superior to others in courage and drive and perhaps most important, in his poetry. Well, you heard the kind of poetry he's been composing for me. I mean, this guy is second to none. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's, mm-hmm. he's second to some. Uh, but it's important. <laughs> I understand. He's your friend. You have to support him. Okay. Uh, so, Andy, do you know who this King of Denmark is? Of course. Yes. It's none other than King Knut. Knut the Great. Knut the, the King of Denmark, Norway and England. Knut the King. Of the great North Sea Empire, John. A big guy. Knut, Knut, Bobu, Banana, Fana, Fofoot, Me, My, Momoot, Knut. That's the guy. Uh, yeah. Although he's only king of Denmark and England at this stage of the game. This is still early in the, the Knut story. It is. But he's not too far off from ousting King Olaf from Norway and claiming the throne there, which is probably why this tale is so important to the saga of St. Olaf in the Flatair book. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. Uh, now, there are a lot of thought here in the Flutter book and in saga literature more generally about men who end up following King Olaf, right? This court mm-hmm. is kind of a who's who of Icelandic heroes of this generation. Yeah. Uh, many of those stories begin with a quick visit to the court of King Knut, which helps to provide a contrast between those two kings. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we actually did one of those stories in the saga short on Thorar and Nefjolsson, um, if yeah. you remember. In that story... Thorarin Nefjelsen and Thorstein Ronhildersen, they become friends while residing in King Knut's court. And a little later, they travel together to visit King Olaf. Right. And Olaf, of course, is naturally suspicious because he learns that these two men have arrived, having recently served his rival Knut and apparently having gone directly from Knut to him. They serve Olaf well, but Thorarin eventually gets in trouble for wearing an arm ring that was given to him by Knut. It's a sure sign that he must be a spy sent to infiltrate Olaf's court. Right, and a trial by ordeal ensues, and Thorarin and his companions are proven innocent, and then Thorarin spends the rest of his days loyally serving King Olaf. Right, it's a, it's a lovely little story, 
but King Olaf seems pretty paranoid in it. Well, I mean, he is about to get run out of Norway by Knut plotting with the king's men, right? So, mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, he is. Uh, and the goal of that story, like the goal of this story, is to highlight the quality of the men who serve Olaf, right? Almost seems at times to be a little bit less focused on Olaf's quality than on the quality of the men he draws to him. Right. Uh, in, Always in Icelanders. Case, right, right. So in that story, uh, Thrarm is established as a good guy who chooses to follow Olaf into exile. Uh, just like Thormod does. Yeah, nothing but the best for King Olaf. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to note also that that story does revolve around Knut uh, giving an arm ring to a follower who then ends up in the court of Olaf. Keep yeah. an eye on that story element as we go forward. Yes, and speaking of our story, let's get back to it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, King Knut is here to provide a contrast in styles, and ideally it's one that should favor King Olaf. Well, I mean, it's his saga after all. I mean, it's uh, uh, yeah. King Knut doesn't appear that much in the sagas, uh, which is kind of surprising. But when he does, there's a, there's a sort of ca- consistent characterization. He's mm-hmm. generally shown as a bold and courageous man, but one who's shrewd, uh, a little bit dangerous if crossed, right? Uh, he's not exactly treacherous, or not always exactly treacherous, but he's the kind of guy that will sort of chisel and cheat his way to get what he wants if he has to. Right? Um, yeah, that's A all- bit of a corner cutter. Right. Yes, that's all true. If if you want to get a sense of how Icelanders typically portrayed King Knut, well, then you need look no further than the story of Knut and his brother-in-law, Earl Ulf, playing chess in Snorri's Heimskringla. You, you, you want to say Kning Knut, don't you? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and so I always have to resist that urge. Uh, it's a good story. You should tell that. I mean, it, it's not long. I know we were going to get back to the, the actual story yeah. we're supposed to tell, but uh, do you mind if I share this one real no. quick? Please, I'd be upset that you didn't. Uh, it's a good example of the kind of guy we're supposed to imagine in these stories. Plus, yes. I want to point out, despite us repeatedly saying it, we haven't actually started Thorbot's tales yet. <laughs> right. uh, in typical saga thing fashion, we're still dancing around the first lines of the actual text. We, I mean, we just can't help ourselves. I mean, we're about context here at Saga Thing. And sometimes that means pausing for a while, smelling the flowers, wandering off for several uh, several minutes. Go right ahead. All right. So this is another story from St. Olaf's Saga, uh, but this time from Snorri's version. And in it, King Knut is pursuing King Olaf and the King of Sweden. And along the way, he stops at Roskilde to visit his brother-in-law, Earl Ulf, a very famous guy. It's worth mentioning here that Ulf is the brother-in-law of both King Knut and Earl Goblin of Wessex, <laughs> the famous father of Harold, the future king of England. At least That's right. he was king for a few months there in 1066. Yes, yes, that's true. Thanks. Um, now, so Ulf, this very important guy, he treats his guests well, and he throws a large banquet to entertain everyone, and it's a great time. Everyone's having fun, everyone that is, except for Kning Knut. <laughs> Seeing that uh, his brother-in-law is somewhat gloomy, Ulf asks him maybe if he'd like to play a game of chess. So Knut agrees, and they sit down and play. And then at some point in the game, Knut makes a bad move, and he loses his knight. So he's really upset by this mistake. And so mm-hmm. he takes the knight back and he puts it on the board and tries <laughs> to take the move back, which understandably upsets uh, Ulf. He, he, yeah. And they end up arguing. So in the end, Ulf tosses the game board onto the ground and walks away. It's it's a bad, bad scene. Right. And uh, it's only made worse when Knut Knut says something snarky, something on the lines of, Where are you off to, Ulf the Cowardly? Nicknames. Yeah, I mean, it's not a nice one. It's uh, it's meant to bite deep. 
Yeah, and it does. Uh, Earl Ulf hears this and turns around and sends a volley of insults at Knut, noting that he wasn't called cowardly when he arrived to help Knut when the Swedes were beating the hell out of him on the Helga River. <laughs> yeah, and all of this is happening, of course, in front of Knut's men. Yeah, yeah. And that's a. Uh, this is the kind of uh, even though he's obviously somewhat justified in his anger, this is the kind of thing that Earl Ulf is going to live to regret. Well, not for long, of course, because in the morning <laughs> when Kanin Knut uh, is getting dressed, he tells his page to go find Earl Ulf and kill him. Oof, that's a mm-hmm. that's a pretty harsh penalty for a, a spoiled chess game. I, uh, I feel like, like your brother uh, competition chess doesn't usually involve that kind of thing. No, no. Of course, there were the insults, but but yeah. Sure. Earl Ulf is then eventually tracked down. Uh, he's found in the choir of the St. Lucius Church, where he's then run through by one of Knut's bodyguards. There you go. So mm-hmm. this is the kind of guy we want you to be thinking about when Thormod meets the great Kning Knut in this story. The kind of guy yes. who cheats at chess and then kills his opponent for calling him on it. Yeah, and on that note, uh, let's actually tell the story now. No more digressions. You know, I'm funny you should say that because I want to digress a bit. Uh, <laughs> this is an interesting thing in medieval literature that uh, cheating at board games is actually one of those uh, tropes that's used to illustrate the sort of uh, uh, the quality of a kind of weak-minded or weak-willed king. Um, it's mm. actually used in a bunch of outlaw stories in England to sort of delineate King John's character. Oh, he's, yeah, a, yeah. he's a guy who cheats at board games and then gets pissy when somebody calls him on it. Hmm. Uh, it's it's sort of one of those things. Then as now, it's sort of poor sportsmanship is considered to be kind of one right. of those besetting sins, right? Uh, but okay, let's, let's sorry, let's get into the story. Yes, so again, no more digressions. Yeah, I'll be good if you will. Okay, well, on my honor, I promise <clears throat> to tell the story from start to finish without digressions, okay? Uh-huh. I'm going to time this, see how long you can uh, survive with your honor intact. (laughs) See how this goes. (laughs) Now, like we were saying, uh, Kning Knut hears rumors that Thormod is in Denmark. And excited by the prospect of such a great man and poet being part of his entourage, uh, Knut invites him to court. Thormod responds quickly, which isn't surprising given the king's character. And he arrives soon after and meets the king. Now, when King Knut asks Thormod to stay with him and perhaps become one of the king's men, Thormod humbly replies, That doesn't fit me, my lord, uh, for I am I'm not capable of taking the place of chief poet such as you've had with you, and I'm untried at composing for rulers as great as yourself. I mean, the man speaks truth. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but Canute isn't hearing this. He says, But it is my wish that you should choose to stay with me. I like that he frames it as a choice. That's pretty I mean, cool. It is a choice, just not a comfortable yes. one. Like I said, <laughs> right? I mean, rejects it as a choice. Yeah, I mean, rejecting the king here would come with some harsh repercussions, but you can choose those repercussions. You can, yeah. So Thormod tries to reject the offer again, which is pretty bold. Mm-hmm. And he notes that, I am hardly suited for such work because I am bad at self-restraint, you see. <laughs> and it could happen that I won't behave well at all. I don't want to cause you trouble because of my bad temperament, King and once again, all of this is true, right? As we have yes. an entire saga of the Sworn Brothers to attest. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Thormont's no dummy. I think he senses that King Knut isn't likely to take no for an answer. So he tries to turn the situation to his advantage as best he can. He says, please, 
Don't blame me for what I'm about to say, but I have heard stories that the men who serve you aren't always given their full reward. Now, that's, that's a bold statement to make, given the situation. I mean, he's essentially calling Knut a cheapskate. Uh, mm-hmm. But Knut uh, Knut acknowledges that it's true. and he, You're going uh, to do that the whole time? The what? The Knut Knut? You're just going to keep going? I mean, you you title, got me man. doing it? It's his title. I'm resisting uh, it. <laughs> uh, he acknowledges that this is true, and he recalls the name of Thorarin Praise Tongue, uh, Thorarin Luftunga, uh, an Icelandic poet who nearly lost his head for composing a simple poem about Knut Knut rather than a proper drapa. So Knut then summoned Thorarin into the hall the next day, and he demanded that he compose a proper draupa with refrains or be hung for his cowardice. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, this is another story from Snorri's St. Olaf saga in the Heimskringla. Yeah, I didn't even make that connection when I was reading Thormodstater, honestly. Uh, but, John, I swore an oath that we won't digress. Let's not digress. I don't think you should have sworn an oath that encompassed me. I think that was a foolish mistake on your part. But uh, fine, we won't. Well, I feel like you just digressed just a little, though, didn't I you? I just said it wasn't wise of you to make this oath. <laughs> uh, but that we can we can get back. That's all we need to say about it, really. Uh-huh. I'll just add, if you're interested, uh, that uh, Thorarin Praise Tongue's story has a little more to it. No, you bastard. Come on. You'll be happy to know that he successfully meets that challenge, adding a refrain and new verses to expand his previous poem and to give it mm-hmm. the form of a draupa. Knut then rewards him with 50 marks of silver. That's wonderful. Uh, don't you think that counts as kind of a digression, John? No, it's a payment. Uh, also... This is just a little bit of context uh, to help our listeners understand what's at stake in this exchange between Thormod and Knut. Your honor okay. is tarnished but safe. Don't worry. Well, fine, fine. But keep in mind, we still have another Thouter to cover in this episode. I'm painfully aware. It's a short one, though. Uh, please continue. Yes. Yes. So Thormod observes that Thororin Praise Tongue almost lost his head composing poetry for Knut, and then he wonders how he, a much worse poet than Thororin, no doubt as he says, could possibly survive in the king's service. Right. At this point, uh, Knut is starting to lose patience. He says, I'm having to press you rather hard, Thormod. That can only go on for so long. But still, I'd like to have you in my service. Thormod now, he still demurs, saying that it's better if he is modest in his plans, uh, even if it would be a great honor to serve the king, but maybe mm-hmm. it would be best if he just went on his way. Yeah, and uh, at this point, Knut uh, Knut finally makes an offer. Rather than have you leave here empty-handed, I will offer you the same fee that Thorarin had. I will give mm-hmm. you a mark of gold if you will stay and serve me. Thormod immediately accepts, but he does add... I will have great need of your guidance and protections, my lord, since I am truly poor at self-restraint, as I told you before. (laughs) And so he stays with King Knut, serves him well, entertaining him with stories and poems, and the king and his men are quite pleased with this new court poet. Now, I think we have to ask, uh, do we think that this was the outcome Thormod wanted from the very beginning, or was Hmm. he actually reticent about taking the position? It's hard to say, Uh, but I'm inclined to think that Thormod is a clever man who took advantage of an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think he clearly knew about Thorarin Praise Tongue. He's well aware of Knut's history and temperament. So I assume that's why he went in cautiously, forcing the issue to get both the terms and the payment that would be most comfortable for him. He's playing the situation. That's a fair assessment, but um, 
I mean, does that mean that we think he arrived in Denmark hoping to attract Canute's attention? Does he really want to serve King Canute? Because I'm not so sure that he does. I mean, we've we've seen men play hard to get when it comes to entering a king's service, but Thormod has some good reasons to avoid becoming entangled with this king. Sure. For one thing, we know that his goal at this point, if he even has one, is to avenge his blood brother Thorgir. And the court of Canute is pretty far from the action. Also, the Canute of this story is known to be somewhat forgetful in rewarding his followers, and specifically his poets, as we've just established. It's not a great track record to attract someone like Thormod. So, I, yeah, I mean, this this feels like kind of a sidetrack for Thormod. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's hard to say. Um, I would ask why did why did Thormod go to Denmark and not to Norway if he was more interested in getting to Olaf? But you know, the the saga is hoping to find Thatcher, joy, Andy. As oh, so many have. That's right. In going in, to Denmark. In, in joyous Denmark. Come to Denmark. <laughs> marvelous, marvelous Copenhagen. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but John, the sagas and Thatter are full of clever Icelandic poets who play similar roles to Thormod mm-hmm. here, right? They, they manipulate their way into a good position with Scandinavian royalty through their wits. True. And then they bounce from one to the other. I don't yep. think he, he's uh, opposed to being with Knut. Again, though. Thormod left Iceland depressed about the killing of Thorgir and looking vaguely for revenge, Uh, or maybe Mm -hmm. looking specifically for revenge and just not being clear about it. He didn't exactly leave with the hope of making a name for himself with Scandinavian royalty, as you say. It may be that he feels he has nothing left to live for. So at this point, I mean, sassing Knut may not be strategic after all. That's possible. Uh, But either way, uh, the arrangement works out. And Thormod spends the whole summer and the winter in the service of King Knut. So it's it's going well. Mm-hmm. And during that winter, a man called Harek uh, arrives at court to visit with King Knut. He's described as a great Viking and a felon, uh, but someone who always brings Knut great treasures and spoils from his raiding. Yeah, again, we can tell the quality of a king not only by his behavior, but by the company that he keeps. Exactly, yes. Uh, Harek regales the court with stories of his summer adventures, but near the end, he mentions that things hadn't gone quite as well since they lost their Prowman. Uh, he wonders, naturally, if King Canute might know of a good man who could take that man's place at the prow. Someone who is not only a great warrior, but also a man who's resourceful with words when a good reply is needed. Oh, mm-hmm. huh. I, I wonder who might fill such a role. Well, uh, uh, King Canute isn't too worried about it at this point, honestly. He doesn't seem to care very much. Uh, he does invite Harak to stay with him. And instead of offering him a prowman, asks him to give up raiding and maybe just enter his service as a bodyguard. Uh, but Harek's not having it. He's a he's a Viking man through and through. Yes. Uh, now, why is it okay for Harek to reject the king's offer, but not Thormod? Well, because Knut wants Thormod for his poetry. Um, I mean, we may or may not think much of Thormod's poetic efforts, uh, but clearly, I think standards, they're great. Uh, of course, you do now. Uh, when we were re- reviewing Frostbrother Saga, by the way, you had a slightly different opinion about his poetry, uh, right up until you- I don't recall that. Man. Yeah. I can't uh, recall. I, I yes. can't recall. I can't recall at this time. Uh, yeah, no, clearly, uh, whatever we think of the poetry, uh, standards are a little bit different in uh, Knut's Knort. Uh, but Harak- <laughs> Oh, come on. Uh, it it doesn't gonna, every really time? matter. Uh, if if Harak's out raiding, he's sharing his spoils with the king, and if he stays, he serves as an able bodyguard, right? doesn't really matter. Knut wins either way. Yeah, that's true. So uh, Harik, he stays the winter with Knut, and as he does so, he spends a great deal of time getting to know Thormod. 
And as it turns out, he quite likes the rascally Icelander. Yeah. Um, and so whenever uh, Horak's not hanging out with Thormod, he's with Knut, always dropping hints about his need for a new prowsman before summer comes. But the king uh, doesn't really engage with this or address the situation at all. Yeah, all of this then comes to a head when Horak approaches Knut and tells him that he wants Thormod as his new prowsman. Yeah, it's a, it's a bold request, uh, since Harak isn't exactly an agent of the king. He's more of a freelance pirate with a fondness for Canute, who kind of sails under his, uh, what we would call his flag if they had flags. Uh, he's It's a little bit different. Uh, it would be a strange move for Canute to push Thormod into service with Harak. Yeah, but uh, it's worth noting that Canute uh, doesn't exactly say no. No, no, he doesn't. Uh, instead, he lets Thormod choose for himself. That's King Knut for you, always giving his men the choice. Uh-huh. Uh, here's where I think we see that Thormod is actually not unhappy with King Knut. Huh. He has an opportunity to leave here, and he rejects it. He says that he'd rather stay with the king. Uh, yeah, but his alternative is signing on as prowsman for a Viking ship that goes raiding in the summers. It's a bit of a step down from being a court poet. I mean, it is, but it's a way out if he wants it, and clearly he doesn't. Well, hang on, that doesn't mean he's not going to be leaving with Harak, of course. Well, I mean, why else would Harak be introduced into the story if not to whisk Thormod away? Yes, no, fair. Uh, but Knut eventually sees some value in letting Thormod go with Harak, so he presses him a bit harder. Yeah, and finally Thormod agrees, and he says, Well, though I'd rather be with you, my lord... I won't entirely refuse the offer, since you ask it of me. Though I do have some conditions. See, there you go. I think this is where hmm. we see the truth of the matter. Right? Uh, Thormod doesn't want to be here at all, but he also knows he can't get away with insulting Knut, uh, just like in the conversation about whether or not he would become Knut's poet. He's got to appear reticent once again and then work the situation to his advantage, right? which he's doing right here. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's true. That that does carry some weight. Um, and, and Thormod agrees to serve as Harak's prowsman only if he's given the power to decide where they harbor this ship and when they decide to raise anchor and move off. Right. Now, people who have any experience with this literature will understand that nothing something like this doesn't get dropped in the narrative without it paying off later. <laughs> right. uh, it's so, but for now, it's, it's an odd request um, because no one else understands the future of the narrative. Uh, but it also gives Thormod some control over his own fate, so it does make some contextual yeah. sense. Which, if we read the the, the texts that Thormod is, is making choices for his own benefit, mm-hmm. it's what he wants. He wants exactly. to be able to choose for himself. Exactly. Uh, and so Thormod accepts this new role with those conditions and prepares to leave with Harak as summer approaches. Yes, but when summer finally arrives, Thormod approaches King Knut and offers him a verse. Hmm. On praise tongue you lavished long the rich lair that Fafnir owned. You gave me hope, glorious one, of the land of glittering fish. I deserve, wide domain slayer of rogues, such rights from you, or else I shall launch out to sea, expecting little. (laughs) In other words, where is my money? That's right. That's right. The poem basically says, you promised you'd pay me what you gave Thorarin. 
And here I stand empty-handed. Where's my money? Right. And uh, Knut does know how to take a hint. Uh, and rather than cutting him down where he stands, which is an option, he draws a gold ring worth half a mark from his arm and gives mm-hmm. it to Thormod. Right. Because Knut isn't a bad guy in these texts. He's mm-hmm. a savvy guy. He's a clever mm-hmm. guy. He's shrewd and dangerous. Yeah, shrewd is good Conniving. Word. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but he's not a bad person. I don't think he ever comes off as, as terrible. Um, mm-hmm. But conniving is, is right. And so Thormod graciously accepts this gift and he adds, Don't blame me for my impertinence, king, if I say something more about this. But you did say, my lord, that I was to receive a mark of gold from you as my pay. My God, the clanking brass balls on this guy. Yeah, He's just sitting yeah, there but, weighing uh, weighing this ring in his hand. Like, ah, that feels yes. like half a mark. It's a little light, eh, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is in keeping with both of their characters, right? Mm-hmm. Knut will take advantage of those who serve him. Uh, that's who he is. That's what he does in these stories. Right. But Thormod also isn't shy about pushing for what he wants or feels he deserves, even when it's probably best that he keep his mouth shut. Right. I mean, as we suggested when we were reviewing the the uh, the saga, there's a little bit of Ale Scott Le Grimson in Thormod, isn't there? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. A bit, uh, although he is not quite as sadistic, I think. Oh, Andrew. I, I, think, I think his, his body quite. count might suggest otherwise, but okay. Anyway, well, we could review the body uh, counts. King Knut admits that Thormod is correct and then offers him another arm ring worth half a mark. And thus he pays his debt in full. Which inspires yet another poem. This one is a proper praise poem. All can see how I have both arms beauteously adorned with the flame of the prow's meadow drawn from the hoard of the mighty king. From the fire of the deep, I, young, must repay the prince who quells the greedy eagle's hunger. I wear gold on both wrists. Yeah, see, that's how it's done. Uh, it's worth yeah. pointing out, but this is, again, as we saw in uh, Through Our Nifflesen's Tale, Right. We have this motif of someone taking arm rings from Knut on their way to eventually Olaf. Yeah. Um, but for now, I mean, this has worked out great. Right. Um, uh, you've got he's got his cake and he's eating it, too. Well, I mean, yes. But what, what does that expression, excuse me, even mean? Uh, have your cake and eat it, too. I mean, it's an expression. You <laughs> yeah. you you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Yes, I know. Yes. But if I have a cake. Why can't I eat it? The saying to me makes no sense. Really, we're going to go into this. Uh, first, we don't of have all, to. I, first of all, first of all, it's an idiom which doesn't need uh-huh. to yield to logic as long as the semantic import is mutually understood by the speaker and the listener. Second, yeah, yet here we are. <laughs> uh, second, it does make sense, you silly man. On a strictly <laughs> literal level, it makes sense if we're thinking about two separate states of cake. States of cake. Yes. Uh-huh. Let's imagine. That you have a piece of cake in front of you. We're going to do a medieval thought exercise here. Okay. All right. I'm imagining a nice piece of cake. It's right here. Okay. Are you really good. imagining it though? What kind of cake is it? it wait, um, it's an yeah, Italian cream cake. You weren't imagining a cake. <laughs> what kind is it? It's an Italian cream cake. Oh, okay. Sure. I'm, I'm sure it's very tasty. Looks oh, tasty it, anyway. looks really tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Now imagine if eating that whole piece of cake. Mmm. Mm-hmm. That's delicious. 
Good. That's good. Hey, Wendy, Wendy, we got any milk? Can I have some milk for this? <laughs> right. Okay. So, milk uh, what's in front of you now on on the imaginary plate? I mean, well, there's there's nothing because I ate it. I ate the exactly. cake. Exactly. You cannot yes. have your cake and eat it too, Andy. You ate your cake. Uh, well, correction. I only ate a piece. I'm going to go grab another because it's really nope. good. I got a whole other. Not cake the same cake. The same uh, piece cannot simultaneously be had and eaten. It I is see. not yes. quantum cake. It is cake <laughs> subject to unidirectional time. Okay. Do you understand? Uh, I, I do. I do. Quick question, though. I, this one is important. Yep. Does this count as a digression? Yes. And Damn now it. you officially have lost your honor. You swore right. there would be no right. more digressions, and now we're talking about cake. I should have left that damn cake alone, John. <laughs> I should have left it alone. Eh, that's fine. I'm sure your reputation will recover. I doubt it. I don't have much to work with, if I'm being honest. Come on. Hey, I'm not exactly Thormod. You have quantum cake, and that's, that's, uh, that's something special. Uh, so how's Thormod doing in the middle of all this? Well, he's doing great. Yeah, so he travels with Harik all through the summer, serving as the Prowsman, and Thormod proves to be a valuable member of the crew, and everyone loves the guy. What with his charming personality, and his prowess in combat, and his storytelling oh ability. Wow. It's great. Have you officially been hired as Thormod's PR man at this point? Uh, no. Yeah, everything's going fine until one day when they're anchored near a certain island in the late afternoon, and they see a group of ships bearing down on them. In the lead is an impressive dragon-browed ship. It's a beautiful vessel. And as it approached, the prowsman of the dragon ship shouts, Get out of the King's Harbor quickly now! Yeah, and all the men on Thormod's ship recognize the potential for a fight that they cannot win, and they prepare to take down their tents and move out of the harbor, but not Thormod. Remember, he bargained for the authority to say where they stay and when they leave, and he reminds them of this now, and he demands that they hold their position. So Harak and the others, they're not happy about this, but they do recognize Thormod's authority in the matter, and they stay put. Oh, my God. Can you imagine just him, like, harumphing at you when you try to go for your tent? Yeah, uh, I know. Just... And at this point, the dragon ship is nearly on top of them. Uh, all the men on that ship are wondering about the audacity of this crew moving so slowly under this threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as their ship passes by the prowsman of the dragon ship, uh, uh, the, dra- the prowsman strikes out his sword at Thormod. And unfortunately for him, he swings and he misses. Yeah, and Thormod isn't the kind of guy to let a fight go one-sided. He strikes back, killing the Prowsman instantly. Mm. And then he he doesn't let that just be enough. Right. He then leaps from his ship to the prow of the dragon ship and then fights his way back all the way to the stern. And why would he do this? Well, that part remains to be seen. <laughs> but he is eventually overwhelmed and captured. Right. It's sort of carrying over that thing that we said about Frostbite Saga, where the, the heroes do remain in the realm of sort of human possibility, right? We don't get yeah. those sort of superhuman accounts, right? This guy jumps onto a ship full of people where someone like A.L. Scott Grimson will clear that ship single-handedly. Thormod jumps on a ship full of guys and gets captured because that's what yeah. would actually happen. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, if you're thinking that Thormod's Viking companions will now rise up to defend their favorite prowsmen, uh, you have seriously overestimated their loyalty. They hightail <laughs> it out of there while the crew of the dragon ship is occupied with Thormod. Yeah, it's a classy move. I mean, what did he expect? It's it's clear they're overmatched from the start. Uh, the only reason they stayed was because Thormod exerted this arbitrary power that he's been granted. I mean, Thormod clearly has a death wish. Doesn't mean they have to share it. 
Yeah. Or maybe, maybe, John, maybe, maybe I could suggest this is all a cunning plan. Oh, I'm not sure about that. But possibly <laughs> because this dragon ship does belong to none other than King Olaf himself. Well, fancy that. Uh, of course, King Olaf isn't too thrilled when he hears that some guy killed their prowsman and then <laughs> yes. jumped on board his ship without asking. He immediately orders his men to put this lunatic to death. Uh, that's understandable, given yeah. what happened. Uh, but one of the king's men, Finn Arneson, is curious about what kind of a man would do such a thing. And he walks over to Thormod, where he's being restrained. Why were you so bold as to dare jump on the king's ship after what you had done to his prowsmen? Yeah, that's a good question, Finn. <laughs> and Thormod <laughs> replies, Thank you. The reason is simple. I didn't care about my life. So long as I came into the king's power. Ah, okay. So, all right. Maybe maybe I'll grant you this one. Uh, this was a clever ploy, a, a, a cunning plan to get Thormod mm. and Olaf together. Well, well, yes. That's the point of the story. But uh, it's not over yet. See, King Olaf still wants him dead. But mm-hmm. Finn Arneson and Bishop Sigurd, who have been chatting about this situation, they step in to speak on Thormod's behalf, begging the king to have mercy. And this intervention intrigues King Olaf. Right. Yeah, he asks uh, Thormod why he would put himself in such a bad position, right? Killing a king's prowsman and then asking for clemency. <laughs> it's odd. It is an odd situation. It is an odd behavior. <laughs> um, Thormod responds with, yes, you guessed it, a verse. Uh-huh. Ah, so many verses. I would feel I had won the whole world if you who daring and fortunate steer the reindeer of prows, took me into your protection. Wise and mighty wielder of shield snakes, I want to live and die with you. Let us carry shields aboard the skis of the isle-encompassing sea. I mean, technically it's a nice poem, but it's a bit stalkery for their first meeting. (laughs) Uh, Isn't it, though? <laughs> Thormod's uh, speaking from the heart. I give him that. But it's got kind of, you know, John Cusack holding up a boombox vibes. Uh, all the same, uh, King Olaf is not wholly convinced that this guy is safe or even sane. Uh, he says, I see from your tricks that you don't care much for your life. If you can get your way, I expect you would defend the position assigned to you well enough. But tell me, what is your name? So Thormod explains who he is, and he also informs the king, this is a clever move here, mm-hmm. that he is the sworn brother of Thorgar Haverson. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing when he names himself, he does not call himself Colburn's poet, by the way, given that there's very little Colburn. honor attached to that name. Uh, but yeah, mentioning Thorgar is a good idea. Uh, Olaf responds, you must be a man with better luck than Thorgir was, but it's clear to me that you are destined for misfortune. You seem young, Thormod. Tell me, how many men have you killed? Now, again, Thormod answers in the first, and I would love to skip it, but this one, John, this one's too good not to share. Are you sure? He says, I'm sure. Six challengers to steel rain have I slain since hatred rose against this tour of sword hilts. I am sometimes known for my strife. I have reached thirty, though hardly to the joy of the men of slaughter. 
I let their skulls be split all the same. I mean, there's some good imagery there. The guy's got away with words. Uh, I think yeah, so. You know, uh, I mean, I think there are. I, you know, honestly, I think the the poetry in the Thouter yeah. for uh, Thormont is yeah. better than I was going to say Thor's that. Side. Yeah, I think this is. We're definitely seeing a little bit of a uh, an improvement to the kind of the, what was sometimes very one note poetry in the saga. Uh, this yeah. is actually quality poetry. Uh, but aren't we to believe that all of these poems are, are by him and preserved across time? I mean, you're free to believe whatever you want, Andy. <laughs> uh, Olaf, however, is impressed because, you know, he believes this is all coming from uh, Thormund since it's uh, coming out of his mouth right now. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. But Olaf's a little uncertain how to handle this guy who seems, again, you know, talented, but kind of unhinged. Uh, he says, it might be best if you don't live another 30 years. Although it's a shame for such a man as you, for you are said to be a great poet. Finally, finally, John, Thormod responds in prose. Ah, hallelujah. He just says, It's up to you how old I live to be, my lord. But I expect good treatment from you for the sake of your friendship with Thorgeir, my sworn brother. I traveled from Iceland above all, because I felt sure that you would want your follower and friend, Thorgeir Haverson, to be avenged. I figured I would be the one most bound to avenge him with your support. Right, and this this uh, speech works nicely on Olaf because it kind of dovetails with what he already wants. Uh, and Olaf yeah. says, well, You may keep your head since you have come to seek me out. Mm-hmm. See, that's nice and all, but John, there have to be better ways to get a king's attention than what oh. uh, Thormont has oh, done. Oh, absolutely. His, his methods are definitely subject to question. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's that's Thormod for you. I don't think you know, confident and well, confident decision making is characteristic of him. Wise decision making mm-hmm. is a different matter. Uh, but I think the <laughs> sentiment here is genuine enough. I mean, this really is what he wants. Yeah, but but how do you explain his actions in the story? He says he left Iceland to seek out King Olaf, but he went to Denmark first, and there he worked his way into King Canute's good graces and seems to have enjoyed his time there. He then rides around raiding with Vikings all summer and only then makes a move on King Olaf's own ship, killing the Prowsman. Why? Well, he was aiming for Norway and missed. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all a cunning plan. We already said this. Yeah, but I don't buy mm-hmm. it. You see, here, here's what I think. I think the Thormod of this story just does what he wants without regard for how his actions might impact <laughs> others. This is the Thormod of the first part of False Brother Saga. Of the, of this the, is the I'm guy. Sorry, the, of the first part. You mean as opposed yeah. to the second part when he was the thoughtful young fellow who serial murdered most of the aristocracy of Greenland. This is what you're saying. Yes. All right. So this is just Thormod being Thormod. Uh-huh. Fine. Uh, he does what he wants. He's happy to serve King Knut. Mm-hmm. He was happy to go raiding with Harak. And he killed the Prowsman simply because... He didn't like the way the guy was talking to I, him. Well, or, I mean, he didn't like the know. way the Prowsman swung a sword at him. There's some justification. Exactly. There. Yes. Yes. And so he let his passion carry him onto the boat, genuinely not caring for his life. But all of this leads, almost as if ordained, to his first meeting with King Olaf. And as we've said elsewhere, King Olaf has a pacifying or at least purifying effect on the men who serve him. And I think that's what's supposed to be going on here. Mm -hmm. Thormod is swept into the presence of King Olaf and made a better man for Hmm. it. That's Thormod's story. That's what makes him 
King Olaf's man. Yeah. That's why it fits into this narrative. What do you think? Am I onto something? Am I okay. crazy? I, I think that works if we just take this as an encapsulated story with no other context. Right. Um, the arrival at Olaf's court serves as a nice and proto-conversion ending to the tale. Uh, but mm-hmm. we know how the rest of the story cycle goes, right? I mean, if we sort of, if we put this back into the context of other sagas, joining Olaf's court is just a prelude to Thormod's murder spree in Greenland. A murder, murder spree, spree, I remind you, that was sanctioned and facilitated by Olaf. There so, yeah. yeah, in this Thouter... Thormod's friendship with Olaf is a positive development in his life. But lots of other people, like the author of Frostbrota Saga and most of the population of Greenland, might see this friendship a little bit differently. Sure, sure. But from Olaf's perspective, it's all good. And and that that brings us to the end of Thormod's tale. Mm -hmm. Thormod is assigned to replace the prowsman that he killed, and so he enters the service of King Olaf. And the two live happily ever after. Oh, how sweet. Uh, but we're not done. Uh, we did promise one more Thouter in this episode. I can't believe we did that. <laughs> uh, this is no longer a saga short. as, as The saga us. medium. But, uh, let's do it. The tale of Thororin the Overbearing. A brief introduction. So do we want to do a quick intro for this one? I mean, we might want to, and you just said we're going to do one. I mean, I'm trying wow. to force the situation. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure our listeners are interested in an introduction to this. but Hey, uh, whose show is this? Well, it's our show, damn it. There you go. Let's do a quick intro, John. Great. 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 Yeah. So, um, <laughs> what do you want to talk about? I mean... John, what do you want to talk about? That's the question. I mean, you know, this this Thouter and stuff. Right. <laughs> this is going great so far. Good intro. Uh-huh. Um, I feel like we're both messing with each other on purpose. And see, we're going to try to see who breaks first. Are we? Okay, I'll start. I win! Scoreboard! <laughs> no, no, no. What, what? What? Nothing, nothing. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Are we doing some kind of vaudeville routine here, John? Um... That depends. I'm not sure I'm going to like this. Am I the fat guy or the skinny guy in this routine? I mean, do you really want me to answer that question? Why, yeah, Yoda? <laughs> Look at us. To We're a real pair here. Yeah, it's the second coming of Abbott and Costello. <laughs> a couple of Webburn Fieldses. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of Burns and Allenses. Yeah. Please uh, please tell me I'm Burns, because I was a big fan of the Oh God trilogy growing up. I want to be Burns. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I haven't thought of those movies in a very, very, very long time. Me neither. Me neither, honestly. But uh, I remember watching them as a young lad and enjoying myself. Uh, I think the one that huh. sticks out is Oh God, You Devil, and then uh, 18 again, which is a separate franchise, of course. But I remember of those Of course. Uh, yes. Who could forget the 18 again franchise with such memorable yes. installments as 18 again? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not a franchise, but to, to be fair... George Burns was in his early 90s when he made that film. I'm sorry. I don't think he made any other films I'm sorry. after it. Did we somehow wander into a retrospective of George Burns' late career filmography? <laughs> uh, are we going to be discussing the Radioland murders at some point? Okay. All right. Which, so by the way, he did make after there. 18 again, Andy. 
Okay, fine. Um, but we need to bring it back to Thorar the Overbearing and the intro uh-huh. that we promised okay. for this. Uh, uh, Thorar and who? First base! Yeah. Uh, seriously, folks. Hey. Thorar and the Overbearing is the co-conspirator who ambushed and killed Thorgir Havison. Uh, he then decapitated yes. the body and paraded the head around Iceland in this sort of vain attempt to attract attention and claim the glory for killing a famous outlaw. That's the guy. And he's got his very own Thouter. Well, kind of. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's not a long one. It's probably one of the shortest that we're going to cover. Yeah, I mean, you could almost say it's, uh, you know, it's just the head. It's <laughs> been cut off for the rest. <laughs> uh, oh, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, wait. Oh, no, no. Um, uh, Andy. What, what? Uh, we didn't what do so the important? decicel measurement for Thormod's daughter. Oh, no. Oh, heaven for Fent. Uh, Whatever will we do with see, no decicel no, 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 measurement? No, 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 no. The hand pressed to your bosom tells me that you're being a smart aleck. Uh, <laughs> you saw that. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll have you know, Dr. Franger, that the decicel like measurement is serious business. I apologize. Please, please proceed with your sacred decicel measurement. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thormod's Thouter has a respectable decicel measurement of 2.24 decicels. Yes, practically a saga, that one. No, it's literally like five pages. Uh, not a saga, <laughs> yes. but a respectable founder all the same. Yeah. You should uh, you should remind everyone what a desikel is. It's been a long time so since right, we've done So, right, desikel is, uh, uh, since we use Hravenkel's, our first saga, to measure the length of any given saga, uh, we use, since founder are short stories, we use desikels, or one-tenth of a Hravenkel. Right. And so, right. at that, totally by that arbitrary, standard, but it's, no, it's not arbitrary at all. Uh, it is my dream <laughs> well, no, that, mean, you know, we, we have established that there are uh, bots on Twitter who use uh, Ravenkels as measurements for the sagas. Uh, sure. So somebody fed our uh, nonsense into a computer. Uh, That's right. <laughs> but uh, so the what we're saying is that Thormod's Thouter at 2.24 decicels is just under a quarter of a Ravenkel. Right, right. Which is, everyone needs to know that. Right. Um, so what about Thorar and the Overbearing's Tale? That one uh, is barely more than two pages, so it's got to be I pretty I mean, it's true, but it's only because low. it's fragmentary. Right? I mean, the tale breaks off in the middle of a sentence. We have no idea how long it could be. How long it could have become. That's right, right. Uh, well, how long it was, because it was written at some point. But uh, given the way that it is written, I would guess that it is at least two or three times as long as what survives. I think it reads more like a saga narrative than a thouter to me. Hmm. Um, but uh, how long is the fragment of Thorar and the Overbearing's Tale, John? Yeah, I, how many desiccals? I think you're edging out onto a pretty rickety limb there because the portion that we have comes in at a slender 1.01 desiccals. It's practically a perfect desiccal. Um, maybe, maybe, John, you can get to the manuscript... And shave off a sentence or two to get it down to that perfect desikel. You think you can sneak into the manuscript room with like an eraser or something? I'm going to be in Iceland in a couple of months and we're trying to get access to manuscripts. Please do not suggest that I would ever do such a thing as to face a manuscript. I would. I, you would never. I know. No, you're a good boy, right. John. You're a good boy. Uh, you you mentioned at the start of this episode that both of the thought we're talking about have somewhat messy manuscript histories. Uh, yes. We've already covered Thormod's tale and its history. So what about Thorar and the Overbearing's tale? Or what's left of it? I'm glad you asked. 
we can uh, move through this quickly because I'm sure we'll discuss the manuscript situation for Ljosvetninga saga when we get there. Yes. And why would we be talking about this Thouter when we get to Ljosvetninga saga? Well, for two reasons. First and most important, because Thorarin the Overbearing Stouter is found at the end of Ljosvetninga saga's C manuscript. Mm-hmm. And second, we won't be able to talk about Ljosvetninga saga without discussing the difficulties that are presented by the two surviving manuscripts. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why we've let this one kind of linger along and end up being one of the ones at the yeah. end. We, uh, It's one of the ones that has more of the more complicated histories. Uh, yeah. But so it sounds like you're saying that this Stouter is actually part of Los Vetninga saga, which would lead me to wonder why we're discussing it right now at all. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question, uh, John. But uh, if you are looking at the C version, which is the younger of the two surviving texts, it is the last part of the saga. Right. And it's fragmentary there, right? Yes, it is. Um, basically, what we have in the uh, the five-volume set of the Sagas of Icelanders, mm-hmm. um, it is just taken directly from that sea text of right. Dilsvetninga Saga. Um, By the way, it's, that it's worth pointing out that uh, if you ever want to know why uh, manuscript oh. studies is so confusing, consider the fact that there are two surviving texts and one of them is called the sea version. You know, I have to now insert the thunderclap after your <laughs> sentence because you rushed right over <laughs> manuscript studies. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh, how exactly does Thorar and the Overbearing story fit into the saga? Because Los Vettinga's saga is mostly about Thorger Gothi and his descendants. Oh, it is, but it's also very much interested in the life of Gudmund the Powerful. And mm-hmm. as you know, Gudmund's son, Eolf, plays a significant role in Thorar and Stouter. Well, he does, but it seems like a really odd place for Los Vettinga's saga to end. Yeah, you're not the only one to observe that. It's it's a strange saga. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and like I said, we'll get there eventually in our fourth quarter mm-hmm. of uh, Saga Thing. Uh, and when we do, we're going to have to contend with the disjointed structure of this text. Uh, this text, which has been called a collection of Thatter rather than a proper saga. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of debate on the issue. Um, and we might even have someone to interview on the subject. Um, hey. But certainly the sea text where we find throwing the overbearing Stouter is chock full of Thatter that don't appear in the A text. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, I think it's time that we tell the tale or at least what we have of it. A whole decicle worth. The Tale of Thorarin the Overbearing. Now, the tale begins, like so many do, with a brief introduction to the protagonist. Uh, we're told that Thorarin, nicknamed the Overbearing, was a loudmouthed brute from Eyjafjord. Yeah, He may not be the most likable guy, but he does get credit for being a good merchant. Good on him. Now, the first part of this tale runs much the same as Thorarin's part in Fosbrother Saga runs. Only it's from Thorarin's perspective now. Mm-hmm. He arrives at Hraunhoven uh, after a long trading journey where he was looking for available timber, a detail which I quite like. Um, and then he sails into the harbor and he spots Thorger Halverson's ship. Right. And there's a slight difference here in that Thorarin already seems to know about Thorger's outlawry for the killing of Thorgils and the yeah. secret slaying of Thorger, uh, which is very different from the way it works in the saga where he sort of is surprised mm-hmm. by that information. He basically enters the harbor, spots Thorger, and begins planning the ambush. All the other stuff about meeting Thorger and promising not to cause any trouble, which is in the saga, doesn't appear in this version of the story. 
Yeah. Nor does Thorgrim, the troll, uh, appear mm-hmm. in the story, which is right. interesting. But uh, it's implied that he's present. Um, but Thrawn and his men prepare to attack Thorgir right away. Uh, we're given an abbreviated account of the battle. It's very, very quick. Um, and it gives Thorgir credit for defending himself against 40 men with a small crew. Mm-hmm. Just like in Fosbrother Saga, two men called Mar and Thorir are killed in the melee before Thorgir himself falls. Uh, Thrawn is given credit for killing seven men, and that's about yeah, it. That's uh, the battle. Right, and when things calm down, uh, in other words, after Thorgir dies, uh, Thrawn once again hacks off Thorgir's head, takes it home, and preserves it in salt. He essentially sort of brines the head. News spreads quickly of the attack and of Thorgir's death. And it is said that many praise the deed. Yes, and this is where the tale diverges from Fosbrother Saga to fill in the gaps on what exactly happened to Thorarin after the fight. Mm-hmm. So we follow the spreading of the news all the way to the home of Eolf Gothmundersen in Mothraveller. And like his father, Gudmund the Powerful, Eolf is one of King Olaf's men. And Eolf wonders to himself just how long a man like Thorarin will be able to enjoy his victory over Thorgir. Mm-hmm. Now, a bit of time passes, and we find ourselves at the Althing, where Thorarin mounts the law rock in front of a huge crowd. Look here, he says. All men must know what happened last autumn, when Thorgir Haverson was killed. There are plenty of men who have offered money in return for this head, and have had reasons to avenge the grief they suffered. Well, he's not wrong. Thorgir was not a popular guy, and he now, did cause enough. a lot of trouble. Right, uh, and Thorin wants to make sure everyone knows who's responsible for Thorger's death, thus climbing mm-hmm. up on Law Rock at the Althing. Yeah. I expect all who are interested to learn that I committed this deed, and so it is I who should be the recipient of the money promised by those who sought to pay for Thorger's head. If anyone doubts my story, then you have his head to look upon. And with that, he unveils the head of Thorger, lifting it up for all to see. Quite the showman, that Thorarin. I mean, there's a flair for the dramatic there that works nicely. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Eolf Gudmundersen is in the audience, and he says, I think that Thorger will be much lamented if all this circumstances of his death are carefully considered. We all know, of course, that King Olaf was well disposed toward Thorger, who was his follower. I wonder if you are pursuing this case... Too eagerly, Thorarin. A sovereign who suffers great injury has many means of revenge. Mm. Ah, man. I mean, that, that just doesn't sit well with an Icelandic audience, I can't imagine. Uh, but sure, fair enough. Uh, now, with that, the crowd disperses. Uh, eventually, Thorarin heads back north to his home, uh, presumably trailing his briny head behind him. Uh, once he's in Eyfjord, he con- considers how he might draw yet more attention to his brave deed, uh, his service to the men and women of Iceland as he sees it. He yes. resolves to put Thorgir's head in a mound on Vettel's horn, where everyone can see and remember who killed the great outlaw. Mm-hmm. And so he buries the head there. Yeah. Which is kind of different from what we saw in Oh, Fulsburg, very much so, it. where they were sort of creeped or- out by the head and how it kept leering mm-hmm. at them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Thorarin should have heeded Eolf's advice, because the news of his deed does indeed spread. It spreads onto a ship that sails over the sea, and it spreads straight to Norway. And soon enough, that news reaches the ears of King Olaf himself, 
And the king is particularly displeased with reports of Thorarin's behavior, the ambush, the decapitation and salting of the head, and of the crude display at the all thing. Right. He's a, he's a little peeved, uh, to say yes. the least. Um, he says, Men have been killed often enough, but I've heard of no example where a man is treated so poorly. It is certainly my wish that the hand that did this be doomed. Now, according to the Thauter, this news arrived around the same time that Thormod set out to avenge Thorgair on Thorgrim in Greenland. Mm-hmm. And while Thormod is battling the storm with guests on his way to Greenland, King Olaf must be making arrangements to deal with Thorarin. Right. He uh, he tasks a man called Sigurd to travel to Iceland with eight marks and seek out Eolf Gudmundarson. He is to have this money and with it my friendship. But in return, I want him to make an end of Thorarin the Overbearing. Sigurd does exactly as the king tells him, arriving in Eofjord not long after. And he locates Eolf in Motherveller and hands him the eight marks with the king's message. Eolf accepts the king's money and his mission. Right, everything is setting up for a great finish here. It is, it really is. Uh, much more dramatic than the brief Thrarin resolution that we got in Brother Saga. Unfortunately, the tale ends just as Eolf rides out to find Thrarin. We get a quick glimpse at Thrarin riding with his own group and beating a slave with his sword for splashing mud on him. But the tale breaks off as the slave turns to ask if Thrarin plans to offer any compensation for the blow. And that's all we've got. Uh, of course, False Brother Saga tells us that Thorgil's Arison and his son Ari brought a case against Thorarin for the slaying of Thorgir, uh in the Spring Assembly. And the case turns out in Thorgil's favor, and Thorarin and others involved in the killing are forced to pay out 200 pieces of silver for the slaying of Thorgir. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the saga doesn't tell us, but Guthman the Powerful is also to be paid 100 silver. Right. Uh, what is clear is that this case takes place at the Spring Assembly. Yeah. We're told just that uh, Thorarin was killed at a gathering in Eifjord. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that in this short Thauder, we would fill in the gap between that assembly and the killing. Yeah, right. So I imagine that, you know, if we think about the way that this Thauder plays out within that context, if it's mm-hmm. a puzzle piece, I imagine Olaf was laying plans with Sigurd around springtime. Eolf Gothmundersen probably got the mission early in summer and got the deed done shortly thereafter. Right. I mean, that sounds about right. right? And like so many Thauder, what we have here is somebody taking essentially the kernel of a story, right? A little a kind of yeah. a side that doesn't really get fleshed out in a saga and drawing that into a separate story. That's right. And there you have it. The the tales of Thormod and Thorarin the Overbearing. Yeah, I don't know if that's much of a tale for Thorarin the Overbearing, but we get essentially the the head of a tale, if you will, uh, or the tail uh-huh. of a tale, uh, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, no, ultimately this ends up being a, a misfire. I'm going to... Andy, I'm going to just uh, throw out a speculation here, since we uh, since we don't have m- much more story to talk about. Um, sure. This thing wraps up right as that slave is asking for compensation. Yeah. Um, and Eolf is riding onto the scene. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out there my fanfic response to this. Okay. Uh, which is to say that in fact, as we have seen a couple of times in other sagas, it is actually the slave who does the slave. Mm. Uh, I, I'm going to disagree, but you can you can go ahead with Here's your my argument. Here's my argument. And I'll tell you mine. Eolf rides up. He has this money from from uh, the king. Yeah. 
he rides up as the slave argues with uh, with Therari. My point is, later on, a man who calls himself Grimm shows up at Olaf's court, <laughs> claiming to have been uh, forced to leave Iceland after killing a dude, oh, and claiming that. that he did more to avenge Thorgir than Thormod did. Mm-hmm. Eilf Gudmundarson never vanishes from Iceland and then shows up under some guise in Olaf's court. Okay. But this slave, who is otherwise unknown to us, could very well have been forced out for killing a much more powerful man and thought that his only and thought that his only possible protector would be the king who Eolf was sent by to do exactly the job that the slave had just done. I rest my case. That is a that is really I, I'm going to adjust my own theory, uh, my own fanfic. Um, but mine mine is going to be in keeping with sagas a little bit more than what you just came up with. <laughs> Wow. But what you said has influenced my take. So I'm going to take it that one step further. Mm -hmm. Here's what happens in Andy's mind. And in the real saga, I would argue. The slave, so insulted and aggrieved by this abuse, will eventually betray his master. Sure, I could see that. To Eolf Guðmundarson. Eolf, because Eolf has to be the killer because it's set up, right? The 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 sequence of events it doesn't suggest that Eolf. That way. Yes, it yes. That's how these things work. So Eolf will do the slaying, but he's going to find out where where uh, Thorarin is through the slave somehow. Then he's going. The slave is going to flee Iceland, travel to Norway, and claim the the the, okay. the killing. All right. So we both agree. That there's a real possibility that this guy Grimm who shows up at Olaf's court is actually a, an escaped slave from Iceland. I really like that idea. I, uh, I I didn't think of that ahead of time. You you proposed that. I'm going with your proposal that Grimm the slave we talked about in False Brother Saga. That guy is this slave. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea. I'm, I'm going to just uh, mention, by the way, that what I'm arguing is also uh, reflected in saga stories. I remind you of the case of Sigurd Sau. Uh, whose throat was slit by his own slave as they hid in a pigsty. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, I mean, you have this great buildup of Eolf sure. riding Absolutely. out to go get him, Absolutely. right? Yep. That's got to pay off in some way. But, yeah, I, I like – either way, I like this idea that this man Grimm is actually a a slave who kind of panics in the wake of the death of Thorarin and finds himself then sort of needing to leave Iceland in a hurry – and whether he has actually done it or not, then claims credit for this killing. Yeah. Yeah. I like pretty that. cool. Yep. Well, I mean, I hope you've enjoyed our ramblings. <laughs> and we've devolved, <laughs> the fact that we've devolved into fanfic tells you that these, uh, these, these, uh, fatter are a little bit unusual for the ones that we usually cover. Uh, yeah. I think it's time we wrap this saga short up before it turns into another unnecessarily marathon episode. I agree. Yeah. Now, if you would like to share your impressions of these two stories, or perhaps you have a lingering question from a previous saga or short that we've covered, please get in touch with us. You can reach us at uh, via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media where we are sagathingpodcast on Facebook and Instagram or sagathingpod on Twitter. Uh, or you can bake us a quantum cake, write your message on it, send it to us, and then fold time and enjoy the cake yourself. Hmm. Or you could do that. Um, or maybe just use the methods I mentioned. I think it'll be a lot less tricky. Look, either way is good. That's the point of quantum cake. 
<laughs> well, that will do it for this round of Saga Thing. We will be back soon in the new year with the Saga of Gunnar of Kveldagnup. And then we will do our third quarter court. And after all that, we'll be diving into one of our favorites, the incredible and somewhat lengthy Laksdala Saga. I cannot wait for that. Happy holidays, everyone, and thanks for listening. Say goodnight, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. Bye for now. Hey, wait a minute. I, I'm supposed to be George Burns. Bye for now. <laughs>